0: Let's take our Bibles in hand. We're in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Luke these days. We come today to the 22nd verse, the title of the message, The Way to Heaven. Now last Sunday morning we examined two very brief parables of the Lord Jesus concerning the kingdom of God. Jesus said the kingdom is like two things. One, a mustard seed, and secondly, like leaven. Both of those things are very small and almost imperceivable, but the result of their growth and their work is large and epic and great. Now, beginning of verse 22, the Lord is on the move again. He's making His way ultimately to Jerusalem and to the cross that awaits Him. But all along the way He is teaching, He is healing, He is answering questions. Sometimes questions are hard. I had my annual eye appointment last week and on the intake form that you fill out while you are in the waiting room, I noticed that one of the questions on the form was occupation. And I didn't know uh, why they would ask my occupation, didn't really see what that had to do with my eyesight. Uh, But when the doctor finally called me back, the first thing she noticed, she said, oh, you're a pastor, let me ask you a question. And for the next 30 minutes, we talked about the Lord. I don't ever mind talking about the Lord. I'm always happy to do so. But uh, sometimes I'm a little nervous when people stop me, strangers sometimes, and say, I know you're a pastor, what about this? Why would God do this? And I don't have all the answers, but I have learned in my old age to say, I don't know, and to smile and to be friendly. Well, I'm glad that Jesus never had to say, I don't know, to any question He was ever asked. He is omniscient, which means He knows everything. However, He seems to have rarely answered questions directly. Rather, because of His omniscience, He would go directly after the meaning Behind the question to teach a greater and more important truth, I can't think of anything more important to know than how to get to heaven, the way to heaven. That is the subject of our sermon today, the way to heaven. Let's read our text Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 22. And he was passing through one city and village to another, teaching, and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem, and someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door for many I tell you will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying Lord open up to us then he will answer and say to you I do not know where you're from. Then you will begin to say we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets and he will say I tell you I do not know where you're from. Depart from me all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and you will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. They will come from east and west and north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this, uh, his word. Now, we've been discussing over the last month or so the difference between the real Jesus the Jesus of the Bible, and the Jesus of popular imagination. The Jesus of the Bible says a lot of things that the Jesus of popular imagination would never say, such as pronouncing woes and and curses on religious hypocrites. Remember after he had that luncheon with the Pharisees, he told them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He told them of their hypocrisy, that they were just play-acting. They were pretending to be pious But their hearts were full of sin. The Jesus of the Bible quite often talked about hell and wrath and judgment. The Jesus of our imagination would not do such. He talked about repentance. The Jesus of the Bible insisted that the only way to heaven was through him. He excluded all other religions. That message would ultimately, he said, divide entire families and that is nothing like the Jesus of our imagination. Well, our text today Is another one of those that puts the Jesus of the Bible in sharp relief over against the Jesus of imagination. So, Jesus is traveling, He's making His way ultimately to the cross. He has set His face to do what God has called Him to do. But Along the way He's teaching village to village and while He's traveling in this unnamed village this unnamed person approaches Him and does what people often do, they ask Him a question. The question was seemingly sincere. Now sometimes people ask questions of Jesus to try to catch him in some fault. That's what the Pharisees did. But this seems not to be the case. This person sincerely says to Jesus, Lord, are there a few who are being saved? Now there were throngs of people who, Follow Jesus wherever He went? This seems like a strange question. Remember right after He left that luncheon with the Pharisee, the Bible says there were at least 20,000 people that surrounded Him immediately. And presumably some of them are following Him from village to village. Why would someone ask are there just a few who are being saved? It's because that person knew what Jesus knew and taught that not everyone who called Him Lord, Lord was a true Christian. That not everybody talking about Heaven was going. And so he asked the question, are there a few who are being saved? Now Jesus could have quoted him a number, a figure, a percentage, a ratio. But he doesn't do that. Remember Jesus rarely answered questions directly. Instead he gets to the heart of the question. And in essence he says, don't worry about a ratio. Don't worry about a percentage. Here's what you need to worry about. You need to make sure that you're there. And then he lays out some very hard truths. I think if there's anything our easily offended culture needs to be reminded of that hard truths are still true. And we need to hear them. Some of you may be offended by what Jesus says today. Note that this man did not ask, are there only a few religious people? He knew that was the case. After all he lived in and around Jerusalem, the holy city. These were very religious people. I got home last night... After four days in the most religious place in America, Utah. And I have the same question, are there a few who are being saved? He didn't say are a few people religious. He knew that many are religious. He didn't even ask are there many who are familiar with you. There were throngs of people around Jesus. The question is are there only a few that are going to Heaven? And and I'll be honest we live in a very religious place too don't we? Some of the largest churches in the world are within 10 minutes of this very spot. I can remember as a boy hearing stories coming back from South Korea of a church that had 5,000 people on campus every Sunday. And I thought it was a myth because I never lived in a town over 2,000 people. And I could not fathom a number that large. And now that would be a mid-sized church compared to some in our area. But we need to ask the question still, are there a few who are being saved? In fact, the largest Christian denomination in the world is the Roman Catholic Church. And I would ask, are there a few who are being saved? The question is not, are they religious? The question is, are they being saved? But even before we ask that question, we need to ask the question, saved from what? What does it mean to be saved? That was the theme of this section of Luke. Jesus was speaking over and again about the necessity of avoiding the wrath of God. This is the same section, remember, when the question was asked about those who were killed by Pilate when they were offering sacrifices in the temple, and those who lost their lives when a tower fell on them instantly and killed 18 of them. Jesus says, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Jesus talked about repentance and God's wrath and about judgment. That's what we are talking about when we say, are you saved? Are you saved from the righteous judgment of God because of your sin? We're not saying, are you saved from a life of loneliness or despair? We're saying, are you saved from the wrath of God? Now, We need to admit that some of what has become part of the popular understanding of who Jesus is has come from the church. People imagine Jesus to be a certain way because of some things they might have heard at church, such as the the road to heaven is, is easy, it makes your life smooth and easy. Just repeat this prayer. Walk down this aisle, fill out this card and you're on easy street. Just unwrap this gift that's under the tree. It's almost as if someone could make it to heaven by stumbling over a rock and falling in there. It's not what Jesus says. Look at verse 24. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able First point on your outline is this, the road to heaven is rigorous. Rigorous means difficult, hard. That, that's because he says strive to enter. The word strive in the Greek is agonizomai, where we get the English word agony. The word agony, as you know, means difficult, hard. It is actually a military term that means to fight. It's the very same word that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 4:7. When he comes to the end of his life and he says, I have fought the good fight. I have agonized the good agony all the way up into his death, being a follower of Christ is a daily battle against our own sin and selfishness. Jesus said that to follow him, you have to be willing to die every day to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow him. So at the very least, he certainly is saying that the Christian life is not to be entered into flippantly or half-heartedly because the stakes are ultimate. But ask yourself this question, when is the last time you heard a pastor tell people that coming to Jesus means giving up their life? Their claim on their own family and their own possessions and their own selfish dreams... How many times have you heard lately for a pastor to call people to enter a war? That's exactly what Jesus did. And because Jesus did, we must, we must tell people to count the cost. Jesus says, what man sits down to build a building and doesn't count the cost? Or else he gets halfway through with a project, runs out of money, and he's a laughingstock. He's talking about evangelism. He's talking about calling people to count the cost of following Him. And the true gospel and the gospel of the Bible taught by the Jesus of the Bible calls us to repentance, to turn from our sin, to divest ourselves of anything and everything that would hinder us from following Him. It calls us to self-denial, not just in a moment where we pray a prayer, but every day of the week the Jesus of the Bible never says, if you've tried everything else, why don't you give me a try? He never would ask flippantly, what have you got to lose? We've well, got a lot to lose. You've got to, live, you've got to lose your own sin. You've got to lose your own self-direction. You've got to give up control of your own life. There is a popular phrase. I hear it among church planners, and even in our own denomination, it's this. They'll hang a sign outside of the building they're meeting, calling it a church, and say to the community, belong before you believe. That is, come on and be a part of what's going on here. We, we have you know, donuts and coffee, got some cool music, got, got a, a really fun area for your kids to play in while we're talking to you, and, and we call that a church. Where on earth did we get such nonsense? I had a church planner recently told me that a good portion of his key leaders in his church were atheists. And he was proud of that fact. We didn't get it from the Bible. The call to follow Christ is not a call to listen to cool music or develop a sense of community. The call to follow Christ is a rigorous, all-encompassing fight against sin every day for the rest of your life. The road to heaven's hard. Well, the Lord doesn't stop there. He further states that the door to heaven is narrow. It's not just hard, it's, it's narrow. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Yesterday, before it was time to get on the plane, we had a few hours to kill, so I took our team uh, over to a city park there in St. George, Utah. It's really just a natural rock climbing area that they fenced off. And in that park there's a slot canyon. The slot canyon begins about this wide, and people line up single file, but by the time you get to the top, which was several hundred yards, it's about that wide. And for reasons I'll let you discern, I did not go. (laughs) But the smallest among us did, including Tyler, who's my intern, who is small. And Tyler made it to the top. I met him on the other side. And he said, that's about as narrow a place as I've ever been. But what I noticed about those people who made it through that narrow slot canyon is that they had to lay down their backpacks and their umbrellas and their water bottles on the other side. They could not get through that place with all of those things. This is what Jesus says, Matthew 7, 13. Enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it and Jesus had the way of distilling all of life down to some very simple categories and he says here are the two categories there are those who go through life and through eternity by way of the wide gate and the wide road. And then there are a few people who find a small gate and travel a narrow road. Most of the people you know are choosing and following the broad way. And I get the picture in my mind of a 12-lane superhighway that is smooth and well paved. It's easy to, to get in there. And I think of, on the other hand, that small gate, it's like that slot canyon. It's one at a time. And when you get on it, it it gets harder every step of the way. And as the hymn writer says, it's full of dangers, toils, and snares. But the most important thing about a road is not that it's smooth or wide or easy, The most important thing about a road is that it gets you where you want to go. And the implication is that the sign to both of those gates and to both of those roads says, this way to Heaven. The people you know and go to school with and your kids play soccer with, their parents who are practicing every form of ism in the world other than the true faith in Christ. They don't think they're on the wrong road they think they are doing fine. There were a team of church members from our church plant that went over to Dixie State University there in St. George Utah this week. They have a what they call a free speech portion of the campus where even Evangelical Christians are welcome to come. And they set up a table there and they passed out tracts and they talked to young people and they asked one young lady who is Mormon, what do you think is going to happen when you die? She says, oh, I have been particularly good lately. She says, I think if I died at this moment, I would go to the highest level of heaven. That's pretty bold. She was confident. But listen, that, that is an exaggerated extreme of works-based salvation. But it's not that far off for most people you know. Most people you know think they're all right. Because they compare themselves to the worst person they know, and so they think if I died, I'd I'd likely go to heaven. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus says uh, it's a small gate and a narrow road, and and few there be that find it. So it begs the question in what sense is the door narrow? I take it that it's exclusive, it's not a 12 lane entrance into a superhighway, it's a turnstile. And by the way, we know who the door is, don't we? John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. The implication is if you go some other way, you won't be saved. He will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Well, we know who the door is, but, but what about its narrowness? Why is the door narrow? Well, for one, it's the only right door. There are plenty of other doors claiming to be the right door that aren't. And when you open that door it looks good because the way is smooth and broad. But here's what every other wrong way has in common. None of them lead to heaven. All of them lead to hell. There is only one door and one path that leads to heaven. And that is through faith alone in Christ alone. What Jesus meant when He said of Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, that except through this narrow door. But I think another reason He said the way is narrow is because you can't get in with baggage. You often hear me say that to come to Christ you have to come on His terms. His terms are repentance and faith. Just like Tyler had to lay down his backpack to get through that slot canyon. If we can't come to Christ and say, Lord, I, I want to follow you so long as I can hold on to this sin. So long as I can hold on to this lifestyle that you've called sinful. As so long as I don't have to get rid of anything, I'm, I'm ready to give myself to you. You can't come. You cannot enter on your terms. You have to come the way of the tax collector. Lord, I have nothing to offer. I'm just a sinner. Lord, have mercy upon me. I call that empty hands and outturned pockets. You're not coming from a place of leverage or negotiation. You're coming under terms of absolute surrender and saying, Lord, here I am. That is the way in which He receives sinners. That's what He means when He says the door to heaven is narrow. But there's a third point, lest we forget and that is this not only is the door narrow the door is shutting and soon will be shut altogether look at verse 25 once the head of the house that's the Lord gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying Lord open up to us then he will answer and say to you I do not know where you're from what a tragedy he's speaking to religious people Jewish people of his day Who thought they were on their way to Heaven. And He says, unless you come through me you are going to find yourself on the outside looking in. I remember in college I just, this memory just came to me. I had a professor who was a grizzled old Vietnam vet. And he didn't allow any nonsense. And he announced on the first day of class, he says, now here's your syllabus, here are the days of the exam, and here's the final exam, which counts 60% of your grade. And if you are one second late, I'm going to lock the door, and you'll fail this class. And people didn't think much of it until the day of the final came. And the clock hit 9 o'clock. He went over and locked the door. Unfortunately, I was there on time. About three minutes later, this little sorority girl who was used to batting her eyes and having doors open for her, knocked quietly on the door. And this old grizzled Vietnam vet walked over and said, What do you want? And she says, I'm here to take the test. He said, Go away. And she failed that class. She thought she could get by on her looks and on her charisma. And by batting her eyes. But He was unaffected. I remember that just now because that is what is going to happen when the door of opportunity to Heaven shuts. People are going to pound on and say open up. Jesus says go away I don't know you. That doesn't sound like the Jesus of the imagination. That is the Jesus of the Bible. In fact it gets worse. He says they are going to say verse 26, Wait a second, Jesus, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, you evildoers. And they're going to weep and cry and tear their clothes. In what sense is the door shutting? What does it mean that Jesus is going to get up and shut and lock the door? Well, at least three ways that I could think of. It is now 1023. 1023. 53 minutes later in your life, in my life, than when we started this service. We are 53 minutes closer to your death and my death than we were when this service started. The Bible says the point of every person wants to die and then to be judged by God. And you say, wait a second, Pastor. The Bible says that there are some people still living when the Lord returns. Yes, but let's, let's give you that. Let's say you do live until the Lord returns. That's another way the door will shut because when he comes, he's not coming to evangelize, he's coming to judge. But I think there's a third way in which the door is shutting that some of us overlook. The Bible indicates that for those who are exposed to the truth over and over and over, and maybe even give intellectual assent that that's true, but that's not for me, not yet that they harden their heart. And your heart can become so hardened that not even any spiritual truth can ever penetrate it. And you will die with a hardened heart. The Bible says of Esau, he died with a hard heart, that he looked for repentance and couldn't find it because he was past the point of even perceiving spiritual truth. So friends, that's a sobering truth. And that's why I said this is a hard lesson somebody may be get mad about. But that's what the Bible says. This is the Jesus of the Bible. He's saying the way is narrow. It's only through Him. And even that opportunity is temporary. And and then he, He brings it home. And He says in verse 28 that place that they're going to be outside of the kingdom, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. So he's talking to Jewish people. They thought by being descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were automatically in. But he says, many of you are going to be like a person looking through that window of the examination room and the door's locked. And you're going to be terrified and brokenhearted and grief-stricken. But it's worse than that. There's going to be a lot of people there that you thought you were better than. Verse 29, And they will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Right alongside Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets, the people they assumed would be there, would be a lot of people they assumed would not be there. And who do you think that is? The people from all over the world. I think it's Gentiles. The Bible says at the marriage supper of the land there's going to be people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That was the great stumbling block that the Apostle Paul refers to over and again in his epistles. He says the gospel to the Greeks is foolishness. These Greeks who prided themselves on their intellect and philosophy. This message that God would leave heaven to die for sinners that was nonsense to most of them. But he says to the Jews it was a stumbling block something they kept tripping their foot over. They couldn't get past the fact that they would have to come through the narrow door the same way as a Gentile. And Jesus says, here's what you're going to find if you don't repent. You're going to find yourself on the outside of a locked door looking in, seeing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophet, and a bunch of Gentiles, and a bunch of people you thought were unworthy. And He says, those who were last will be first, and the first will be last. But again, what was the original question? Are there many being saved? That may be a question you've had as you passed megachurches. That's not the right question. Jesus got right to the right question. He said, "What about you? Will you be there?" Friends, you can be. You say, "Pastor, I thought you taught grace, not works. I do." Paul says salvation must by grace through faith. We teach salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we don't teach a cheap grace. We try to do what Jesus did, which is to tell people to count the cost. That coming to Jesus is not something you do flippantly. It's something you do with the consciousness that it's going to cost you everything. That you've got to give up your own wicked life pursuits. You've got to give up your pet sins. You've got to give up control of your own life and come on His terms, empty hands, outturned pockets. Lord, have mercy upon me. But here's the glorious truth. If you come that way, the narrow way, the difficult way, it leads to heaven. Isn't that the most important part? But if you go any other way, if you try to go around The outside, you're going to find the back door locked. If you try to go through a window, it's locked. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the door. I am the only way to heaven. And you must come on his terms. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And it's different, I must admit, than what I even hear in a lot of churches. That soft sell the gospel and water it down and try to make it palatable for people who don't even have any inclination to follow you. The tragic truth is that many people who are exposed to church and religious things are going to be on the outside looking in on that day. And they're going to say, but Lord, we're familiar with you. We can quote some Bible verses. We went to Sunday school. they're going to hear depart from me I don't know you I can't think of anything more tragic Lord I pray that that would not be the case for anyone in this room that every person here would recognize the true gospel is a call to self denial it's a call to a battle every day but the glorious truth is that narrow way entered through that small gate is the road to heaven And if there are any here who are on any other course, Lord, I pray that you would stop them in their tracks, convict them by the Holy Spirit of this truth they've heard today. By your Spirit, draw them to true repentance and faith in Christ. And we'll rejoice when that happens. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast.